In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, as expected, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates for the eighth time today the rate is now two to two and a quarter percent. So I guess the midpoint is what? 2.125% is the current level of interest rates. The move was highly anticipated. Of course, even I expect the Fed to raise rates at this point. I have been expecting that for some time, ever since the Fed first began raising interest rates, it became apparent that they would continue to move rates higher. The only thing that was significant or potentially significant about this rate hike was the removal of the word accommodative by the Fed in their official statement to describe the current state of monetary conditions or monetary policy. Now, I initially thought that that was a significant removal of a word. Obviously, the Federal Reserve thinks very carefully about the written statements. And so if they chose to remove a word, that was there, and they know that people parse through these words with a microscope. Uh, and so the fact that the word was missing, and obviously it's missing by intention, it wasn't just an accident, that they're trying to send a message. And what I first thought the message was, and I still believe that that was in fact the message, even if the Fed is trying to backpedal, but that the Federal Reserve views a 2% interest rate as neither accommodative uh, or maybe 
uh, restrictive, but maybe neutral, that the Fed now believes that rates are high enough that they would no longer be described as accommodative. Meanwhile, rates are 2%. I mean, 2% in my mind is still a highly accommodative monetary policy, especially when the annual rate of inflation, even the way the government measures it, is above 2%, because that means that you still have negative rates of interest, negative real rates. And how could you describe negative real rates as anything but accommodative? But apparently that's how the Federal Reserve chose to describe its current monetary policy. Now, Powell was specifically asked about the removal of the word accommodative from the statement during the Q&A period that followed the official announcement. And basically what Powell said was, hey, don't read anything into the removal of that word. It means nothing. We removed the word, but we didn't mean anything by it. And we're still accommodative. Policy is still accommodative, which doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, if you didn't mean anything by removing the word, if removing the word had no significance whatsoever, then why remove it? And if the word had no significance, then why was it there in the first place? So to me, I just think Powell, just in an off-the-cuff remark, you know, had to acknowledge the fact that the Fed is still being accommodated because I think Powell wants the markets to believe that the Fed has their back and that the Fed is being accommodative, even though the official uh, statement removed that word. But what I think is more significant about it is that it validates what I have been saying, which is that the Fed is much closer to the end of this rate hike cycle than is generally perceived and has been priced into the markets. Because if 2% is no longer considered stimulative, well, then how much more can the Fed hike rates before it thinks rates are too high? I mean, maybe 2.5%, which would be two more rate hikes. In fact, the Fed did indicate that another rate hike is likely to happen by December or in December. So one more rate hike this year which would mean the Fed would have raised interest rates four times uh, during the calendar year. But beyond that, if the Fed already thinks that 2% is not stimulative, then how much higher can they go before policy is now restrictive? And of course, the Fed may not want to pursue a restrictive monetary policy, which means there's not that much left in the Fed's rate hiking which means to me we're you know, a lot closer to the point where the markets really should be factoring in the next easing cycle, which can't be too far off. And if the markets are, in fact, forward looking, then why not look forward to that ease? Now, probably the most interesting question that was asked during the press conference, one of the reporters, and I forget which one, asked Powell, if the Fed was going to have to keep raising interest rates until something breaks, meaning that, you know, how do you know when to stop raising rates? So you're just going to keep on raising rates until we have a major problem. And then that's going to be your signal that you've raised too much. And now you got to start cutting because now, you know, the economy is finally reacting negatively to the rate hikes. And the answer that Powell gave was, that there was no need to worry about that because the Fed was moving very slowly. That one of the reasons that the Fed wanted to raise interest rates slowly was so they would have an opportunity to judge the reaction in the market to the rate hikes. 
so that if there was any adverse reaction to a hike, well, then they wouldn't have to you know, continue to hike or they can adjust their policy. But that since they were going so slowly that they could be confident that they weren't going to make a mistake. And of course, that was the same hubris that we had from Alan Greenspan leading up to the 2008 financial crisis, because at the time, the increases were a quarter of a point at a time. Now, I think that the Fed was hiking rates by a quarter of a point every time they met, not every time they had a press conference. So the increase happened a little bit quicker under Greenspan, but still Greenspan believed that the measured pace was the best way to insulate the economy from the shock of just jacking rates up all at once, that they would just raise rates very slowly and therefore the market would have time to adjust to the higher interest rates. And I remember at the time, I was very critical at the Fed specifically for doing that because I said the slow and measured pace at which the Fed was raising rates was causing problems. They were leaving rates too low for too long. More people were getting suckered into the tender trap of adjustable rate mortgages and that the Fed would ultimately uh, regret this and the market would pay a large price for the slow pace of rate hikes. Well, now rates are being raised at an even slower pace now than they were then. And you have the Fed confident that simply because they raised rates slowly, that somehow the markets and the economy will be insulated from any ill effects and they will have ample time to judge the effects and maybe adjust their policy. But what's happening is this is simply lulling everybody into a false sense of security. Yes, had the Fed moved more aggressively at raising rates, they would have pricked the bubble sooner. They would have brought on the recession sooner and the problems would have been more obvious to everybody. But because they are proceeding as slowly as they are, they're simply allowing the problems to get that much bigger before the bubble finally bursts. They're letting the bubble get that much bigger. And when it pops, the Fed is not going to be in a better position because they acted so slowly. They are going to be in a worse position. And believe me, it's not like the Fed is going to finally see a small reaction to one rate hike that will enable them to quickly reverse course and engineer this soft landing that everybody likes to like talk about. The minute there is a problem from the rate hikes, it's going to it's going to be a crash landing. There's going to be no opportunity to try to soft land this thing, because as soon as it goes down, it's going to come crashing down, even if the Fed immediately goes from whatever they've raised rates to to zero and launches another round of quantitative easing. It's not going to be in time to stop uh, the damage. In fact, for all of the optimism that's out there, not only by the Fed, because, of course, Powell, in his uh, uh, prepared remarks and in the press conference, went on and on about how great the economy was, how everything is great. Donald Trump, again, he gave a speech to the United Nations yesterday, and he basically boasted that he has accomplished more than any president in the history of the country. Uh, the economy was booming. In fact, this actually resulted in some laughter. And Trump was actually questioned about the laughter at his press conference. And he tried to say that they were laughing with him, not at him. But maybe initially they were laughing at him when he kind of made a joke of the laughter. But I think the initial laughter was in response to Trump bragging about how great he was, which, you know, I don't know that that's 
really the forum. I mean, when you're at the United Nations, you're not really there to just toot your own horn and talk about what a great job you're doing, except for the fact that Trump is exaggerating, both in, you know, how much he's accomplished as president and how strong the economy is. Now, first of all, I mean, most presidents haven't accomplished anything good. They accomplish bad things. So in my mind, a president that accomplishes nothing is a lot better than a president who accomplishes a lot of bad stuff. Because remember, when America started, you know, we were in a great place because we had hardly any government, right? Government spent maybe, I don't know, 2% of the GDP. We had a tiny government. We hardly had any taxes. We had very few regulations. And so all the so-called accomplishments have been more government, more regulation, more taxes. So everything that government has accomplished has diminished individual liberty and individual freedom. So I don't like those accomplishments. I mean, if you start off as a communist country and you have massive government and then you accomplish removing some of the government, if each successive president chips away at the size of government and results in more and more freedom, then that, those are the accomplishments that I would be proud of, right? Making us freer, making the country uh, more free and having less government. But when you start out with maximum freedom and minimum government, and each president manages to increase government and diminish freedom, well, I mean, that's that's not really a lot of accomplishment. So you know, to say that I've accomplished more than any president, in my mind, sometimes that's a bad thing because the accomplishments are detrimental to the economy and detrimental to individual liberty. But obviously, that's not what president had in mind. He thinks he's accomplished all this stuff. The reality is he hasn't accomplished uh, nearly as much stuff as he thinks he's accomplished. And of course, the economy is not nearly as good as President Trump says it is. In fact, in the press conference today, he said our economy has never been this hot. Well, none of the actual data bears that out. I mean, yes, you have record high consumer confidence numbers. I get that. I understand that there are people who believe that things are going to get better. But from my experience, consumer confidence numbers are more of a contrarian indicator than a reliable indicator of what's going to happen in the future. It just kind of lets you know a snapshot of how optimistic people are in the future. It's a lot of hope. And a lot of that hope has been engendered by a lot of the hype. So yes, people are optimistic. They're going to be very disappointed when it turns out that their optimism was, was unfounded, that all the good things that they're hoping are going to happen are not in fact going to happen, right? A lot of people were optimistic about all the great things that were going to happen with Barack Obama, and it didn't happen. So a lot of those disappointed voters, uh, you know, went to Trump, and they're going to be disappointed again. But if you look at just the numbers that are coming out now, the numbers that came out today, we got numbers on new home sales. And the big disappointment was in the revisions to the prior months. And those months were already disappointing. New home sales had been falling, and now we found out that they fell a lot more than we were originally told. Initially, the new home sales numbers for July were 627,000, and that was lowered to 608,000. And the August number came in at 629, which was slightly below the 630 estimate. Now, a lot of the reports were, oh, that we had a jump from the prior month. And yes, we did. We had a slight jump from the original reporting number, but we had a much bigger jump from the revised number because the revised number was so low. 
But of course, given how big the downward revisions were to the prior month and months, in fact, they revised the, uh, the prior month lower as well. I think there is a very good chance that they're going to end up revising this number down. And so it's probably going to be another month of declining new home sales. But probably the most ominous sign of all is if you look at the inventory on the market. Right now, the supply of new homes that are unsold is the highest it's been since February of 2009. Now, that was in the depths of the Great Recession. Yet now we have as large an inventory of unsold new homes now when, according to Trump, the economy has never been hotter. Yet the only time we had this big an overhang was in February of 2009 when the economy had never been cooler. So does it make sense that the economy is doing so great? Why can't people afford to buy these new homes? And if people can't afford to buy these new homes now, well, they're even more expensive with today's rate hike because the biggest problem for the new home buyer is the mortgage. And mortgages are now at 5% for a 30-year fix, and they're going to go higher. I mean, if the Fed continues to hike rates like they claim they're going to be, it's not going to be long before mortgages are at 6%. Now, 6% may not sound like a high number, but when you had them down at 3%, 6%, you know, is in the stratosphere. And if people can barely afford to buy them now, which obviously they can't because the houses are sitting there unsold. And in fact, the builders are already starting to build in concessions and give away freebies and cutting prices. And they still can't sell the houses they've already built. And of course, there's still more construction, you know, going on. And they're simply adding to the glut of unsold houses but ultimately, all these unsold houses are going to cause builders to stop building, which is one of the reasons that all of the home building stocks that are publicly traded are already in bear markets. Right. The market is already forward looking and saying, hey, these home builders are not going to make as much money and they're going to build fewer homes. Well, what does that mean? They're going to employ fewer people that are employed in construction and all the ancillary jobs. So those layoffs are going to come. And what does it also mean when you have a glut of unsold homes? Prices are going to come down. How do you clear the market? If you have all these new homes that no one can afford to buy, well, prices have to go down. And of course, the other thing that is complicating the home building is the increased cost. The tariffs are making the products or the, the, the raw materials more expensive. And, you know, Trump was asked again about these tariffs in his press conference, and he basically said that he's getting ready to impose tariffs on cars that are coming in from Canada. And he said, this is going to be great. He says, we're going to make so much money on these tariffs that it's going to be better than if we have a deal with Canada, because we're going to make all this money off the tariffs. Who is we? We're not making the money. We're paying the money. I mean, the government is making the money because they're taxing the public. But Trump still thinks that Canada is going to be paying the tariffs to the U.S. government so that we're going to come out ahead, that we're going to get all this money from Canada. The money doesn't come from Canada. To the extent that anybody pays the tariff, it's the American consumer paying the tariff to the U.S. government. And if he doesn't want to pay the tariff, well, then he doesn't buy the product. And then the U.S. government doesn't get the revenue and the American doesn't buy the product. But there is no way that we come out ahead. Trump still thinks that. In fact, in the press conference, 
He said that some people think tariffs are taxes and they're really not. Yes, they are. I mean, if they're not a tax, what are they? I mean, that's exactly what they are. But the president still doesn't understand that. He still thinks we win by imposing tariffs. But meanwhile, tariffs are increasing the cost of building new homes, which people can't even afford anyway. And now the cost is going even higher with mortgage rates. But you've got higher insurance costs. You've got higher property taxes. And now for a lot of people, you no longer get a tax break. Right. Thanks in part to the new tax law that the president passed, fewer people will be itemizing their deductions, which means fewer people will be able to utilize the home mortgage deduction, which means that buying a house is no longer going to come with a tax incentive, which increases the cost of owning that house and makes the decision to rent more economical, even as rents are going up. And then, of course, for higher income earners who can still itemize, if you know they live in one of these states that has high income taxes, they're going to max out their $10,000 SALT deduction, and they're not going to be able to deduct the property taxes that they're paying. And so that increases the, the, the real cost of the property tax, and the property tax is like a liability for a house. The value of the property tax detracts from the house because when you buy the house, you are obligated to pay the tax. And so that future tax liability has a present negative value into the house. So the higher the tax obligation, the lower the value of the house, because when you buy the house, you assume the liability. Just like if you buy rental property, part of the value of the property is the rent that you collect. Well, if you buy a house to live in it, the property tax is like you're paying rent to the government. And the more rent that you have to pay on the house that you buy, the less that house is actually worth. So there's all sorts of reasons that property prices are going to continue to fall. And uh, this housing industry is going into recession. I mean, if it's not already there, it is headed there. I mean, this is just like 2006, 2007, with the inventory building, the affordability going away as rates were going up. Same thing is happening now, and nobody cares. Except it's not just the home builders. I've been talking about it. It's the autos. Another new low today in General Motors for the year, although it did manage to close positive. Uh, Ford, though, down again. Uh, not a new 52-week low, but it's still hovering near a nine-year low. But you have the auto sector in a bear market. You have the home building sector in a bear market. Does this look like a booming economy that's never been this hot, where these two key sectors are basically flashing recession if you look at their stock prices and if you look at what's actually going on with car sales and inventories and home sales and inventories. But, you know, I read another interesting statistic today that, you know, just doesn't jive with a booming economy. And it had to do with traffic that for the first time in four years, traffic has gone down on the highways. Right. So the roads are less congested. Uh, fewer people are on the roads or people aren't driving as much. And it's the first time in four years that we've seen a decline in, in the amount of driving. Now, for a lot of people are going to say, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. Right. Hey, less traffic. Who wants traffic? So if traffic isn't as bad, well, you know, people aren't going to be upset about that, except if the economy is booming and all these people have jobs, don't they have to drive to work? Wouldn't you expect more people on the roads in a booming economy? I mean, more stuff getting transported around. I mean, there's more economic activity. There's more driving. In fact, the article that I read that, that pointed this out said that the reason that people were driving less and actually buying less gasoline, too, as a matter of fact, is because the prices had gone up so much. 
And so because the price of gasoline has gone up, people are choosing to drive less. Now, if the economy were really this hot and this strong, I mean, if it was booming like it was never boomed before, would so many Americans be so cost conscious about how much gas costs? Would people really decide in a booming economy, no, I'm not going to make this trip because it costs me an extra five bucks or ten dollars to fill up my car with gas? If the economy was so good, they wouldn't care about the extra five or ten dollars because they'd have so much extra money. People would be working more. They'd be getting raises or they got the tax cuts. So if people felt wealthier and the economy was doing better, they wouldn't have to reduce their driving just because the cost of gasoline went up. When people are really cost conscious, when people are, you know, using coupons and, and pinching pennies, right, when they're really trying to squeeze the last dime out of every purchase, it's because they're having a difficult time, right? They're having trouble making ends meet and they really feel the pressure to try to do whatever they can to minimize their costs, which is what a lot of Americans are doing now. They are under financial pressure. The price of gas is going up and so they are adjusting their lifestyles. They are driving less in order to minimize the cost of having to pay for the gas. This is not the behavior that you would see in a booming economy, right? This is the kind of behavior that you might expect during a recession when people have to make these trade-offs. But believe me, the trade-offs are only just getting started because oil prices are heading a lot higher once the dollar turns down, which I believe it is going to do, especially if people start to understand that the Fed is almost done hiking and the economy is rolling over, that the tariffs are backfiring, right? that the tariffs are calling into question the dollar's role as the reserve currency, as well as a lot of the other sanctions and the ways that President Trump is choosing to weaponize the dollar. Obviously, if the dollar is a weapon, then the rest of the world needs a shield. They need to find a way to defuse that weapon, to protect themselves from that weapon. And the way to do that is to get out from under this dollar system, start utilizing and transacting in other currencies to neutralize the effectiveness of that weapon. So as the dollar goes down, prices are gonna go up even more. Interest rates are continuing to go up. So American debtors have to pay that higher interest, not just homeowners, but people who have credit card debt, student loan, auto debts. Remember, corporations have issued a tremendous amount of debt in order to buy back stock. A lot of this debt had shorter term maturities. A lot of this debt is gonna start maturing and now the companies need to roll it over. They need to go out and reborrow the money, but you know what, now they have to borrow at the prevailing rate, which is much higher than the old rate. Well, where is all the extra money gonna come from to pay the higher interest? It's gonna come right out of corporate earnings. So all these lofty earnings expectations are not gonna be met because more of their revenue is going to be expensed as interest. And in fact, some companies, their interest expense might rise so much that they have no earnings at all. It might wipe out all their earnings, especially if their sales are falling because their customers are also spending so much money on interest that they no longer have the discretionary income to buy their products or you know their services. And so your revenues are falling as your expenses are rising. So the perfect storm is coming, yet all the weathermen at the Fed and you know, on Wall Street or on, in the financial media or the president himself, hey, sunshine, everything is great, nothing to worry about. Yet here we are 10 years after the 2008 financial crisis 
and nobody nobody cares. And of course, we're going to be coming to October, right? October is an ominous month. I mean, not every October is there a stock market crash, but obviously we had the crash of 1987 in October. The big crash in 1929 was in October. There were some other Octobers that were notorious for big stock market declines. Yet no one seems to be talking about the possibility of a big stock market decline this October, and it could happen. And obviously, if it does happen, that has huge implications for the midterm elections uh, the following November. But given you know where the bond market is, by the way, bonds actually rose today, right? The Fed raised interest rates, and by the rumor, sell the fact in the bond market, bond prices rose. The yield on the ten-year and the thirty years came down. And so the yield curve itself actually flattened because the short rate went up, yet the longer rate went down. But I think that is a one-off move. I still think the trend is higher in long-term rates. The dollar was actually flat today, not much movement out of the dollar. Gold was down about seven bucks. In fact, it was down all day. It opened down about that level. I think I saw it get down to maybe less than a buck at one point after the Fed hiked rates, but it never quite went positive. And, and, and then it sold off. But maybe we'll start to see some bigger reactions uh, to what the Fed did uh, tomorrow, Friday or next week. I mean, oftentimes you see a delayed reaction in the markets uh, to a rate hike. But again, the Fed has been playing with fire all along with these rate hikes. And one of these hikes is going to be like that proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. Of course, you never know which straw is gonna break the camel's back until you put it on, the camel. But of course, once the back is broken, well then, you know, that's it. I mean, you destroy the camel. And so Powell somehow thinks that if he breaks the camel's back with one straw, just because he's been putting the straws on very slowly, that somehow he's gonna be able to bring in the, the, the medics and, and, and nurse that camel back to health quickly enough uh, so that, you know, it doesn't matter. Believe me, you break your camel's back, it's all over for that camel. Let me conclude today's podcast by updating everybody again on the ongoing Brett Kavanaugh saga, which may come to a conclusion following tomorrow's hearings. But today I learned about a third woman who is coming forward with evidence of sexual misconduct, potentially rape, also contradicting claims that Brett Kavanaugh made in an interview the prior day that was aired on Fox News. And one of the admissions uh, that Brett Kavanaugh made was that he remained a virgin throughout high school. In fact, for many years following high school. So he didn't exactly say that he lost his virginity while still at college, but he may have remained a virgin for you know all of the years that he was in college. But not only did he say that he was a virgin in high school, he said he never even came close to having sex or something like sex. So, uh, I, you know, basically he said he was really kind of a choir boy. He said he was focusing on his church, on sports, on academics, and he was really only friends with girls. You know, he didn't really have any girlfriends. He didn't have time uh, to pursue women because he was pursuing academics and sports. And that's where he was concentrated on in his community and his church. And so he categorically denied all of the allegations. No way. This couldn't have been him. And he was specifically questioned about his drinking. And while he didn't deny drinking at all, 
Uh, he did say that he did not recall any point where he drank to such an excess where he could not even remember what he did the prior day. So it's basically impossible that some of these allegations could be true, yet Brett does not recall them because he had drunk himself to the point where he lost his ability to remember what he did because he testified that none of that ever happened. But now you have a woman coming out who specifically says that she not only recalls being at a party where rape was going on, I mean, organized rape. According to this woman, Brett Kavanaugh and his buddies would spike the punch bowl with alcohol and even drugs. And the purpose was to get women drunk so they would lose their inhibitions so that they could have sex with them. And what they would do is they would take an intoxicated woman into a room and they would all take turns like a train uh, having sex with her one after another. And, and she said that she went to multiple parties where this was going on, where she observed uh, this orchestrated effort on the part of Brett Kavanaugh and his buddies to liquor women up and then proceed to rape them. That this was not happening just once, but that it happened on multiple occasions. And she knew about it and that, you know, she would make an effort, you know, not to drink the punch, knowing, uh, you know, what ultimately could happen to her. But that apparently at one of these parties, I guess somehow maybe she drank the punch or I don't know, because she claimed that eventually she became a victim herself and was raped uh, in, in this fashion. Now, I'm not sure if she's saying that Brett Kavanaugh was one of the multiple boys who raped her that night or if he was just standing guard or he just happened to be uh, somewhere at the party. I mean, he definitely she definitely said that he was there. I'm just not sure if she's alleging that he was one of the people that she had sex with at this party. Well, first of all, there are so many holes in, in this story. I mean, first of all, the woman is saying that she witnessed these rapes repeatedly at these parties, yet she kept going back to the parties. I mean, what woman or girl is going to see other girls getting raped and then not only not say something about it, not report it, but just keep coming back to the same parties with the same boys who she knows is are raping other girls and she's just going to be careful not to drink the punch herself? I mean, she's not warning the other girls, hey, stay away from the punch because, you know, you're going to end up getting raped. And then somehow after going to enough of these rape parties and voluntarily returning, she eventually gets raped herself. Oh, well, I mean, gee, who could have seen that coming? None of this makes any sense. And of course, if this were going on, if there really were, you know, these organized rapes, there were multiple victims. Where are these victims? Why aren't they coming out? There should be all sorts of witnesses who can corroborate uh, what was going on at these parties. And I would have a hard time believing that all these rapes were being committed at all these parties. And nobody said anything until Brett Kavanaugh gets nominated to be on the Supreme Court. Now, all of a sudden, somebody brings it up and everybody has been silent the whole time. I mean, what makes more sense that all the other people who witnessed all these rapes, including all the other women who were raped, all these people are remaining silent. Right? They're just, you know, and this one woman that comes out is, you know, and then believe it. 
I mean, it seems to me that it makes more sense that this woman is making it up and that it didn't happen than that all these other women, both victims of rape, witnesses to rape, and all the other guys who were at these parties. And of course, you can't tell me that every guy at these parties was participating in the rape, right? Because maybe people would be reluctant to come forward and say, yeah, the rapes were going on because, you know, you were one of the rapists. I mean, there obviously must be some boys that were at these parties that were not raping, you know, the girl. I mean, I mean, none of this makes sense. Yet somehow we have to believe this allegation just because it's come out. Of course, you know, this is right after Brett Kavanaugh is on television denying that any of this happened. Now, all of a sudden, somebody comes out of left field and says, yeah, it happens to me. That seems just too convenient to be true. Like, just like I went over the last podcast, the woman with this crazy story about Brett Kavanaugh exposing himself to her, uh, and she inadvertently touched his penis, right? Well, what did the woman say to the reporter or whoever she leaked the story? The, the reason this was so bad and so traumatic was because she had no intention of ever touching a penis until she was married. Now, who believes that? I mean, I, I don't believe that statement for a minute. I mean, I get that maybe there are women that are going to save their virginity from marriage, right? I can see that happening. But this woman is claiming that it wasn't just her virginity that she was going to save for marriage. She wasn't even going to touch a penis until she got married, meaning that she was going to go on dates, she was going to get engaged, have an entire engagement, and not until after her wedding night would she even touch. I'm not talking about having sex, right? Intercourse, you know, losing her virginity, but she wasn't even going to touch one. I mean, to me, I think she just made that up to make it sound that much worse. I mean, if you're a girl and you're in college and it really is your intention not to come into contact with a penis until you're married. I mean, you're not going to go to parties and drink yourself to the point where you're passing out on the floor. Because if you're going to do that, if you're a young girl in college going to parties and getting drunk, there's a pretty good chance that that is going to result in your coming into contact with a penis, right? I mean, that's probably what's going to happen. And so if you are dead set against that ever happening, you would be more careful of you know, drinking uh, at parties with boys. If you really want to protect yourself that much, you, you know, you want to maintain control of your faculties. So it just doesn't jive where the girl would drink this much at this party. You'd claim that, you know, she was basically going to be a nun until she got married. So I kind of think all this stuff is being made up just to make Brett Kavanaugh look that much worse. But, you know, given Kavanaugh's testimony, what he stated, basically how chaste he was, uh, you know, that none of the allegations make sense. Obviously, if Brett Kavanaugh is not even sexually active in high school, which, you know, it's not that rare for a boy not to be sexually active in high school. I think it's pretty rare if he went all the way through college uh, without that happening. But to the extent that he wasn't sexually active, then why would he attempt rape while in high school? I mean, I think it's a pretty slim chance that if you're a virgin, you're going to make your first experience a rape. You know, I mean, I know, I mean, guys are generally in a hurry to lose their virginity. I mean, girls, not so much. I mean, they kind of want to find the right guy in general, you know, and so they want 
the experience to be more meaningful to them. Guys kind of just want to get it out of the way. You know, it's kind of like a monkey off their back. They want to hurry up. Uh, and so they're, you know, they want to discard that V card as quickly as they can, but generally they're not going to resort to rape, right? I mean, that's not how a virgin is probably going to uh, have sex for the first time is, is by raping somebody. So my guess would be that if you are going to rape somebody, you've probably already had sex a few times. You kind of know what you're doing and you're, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're confident enough to commit a rape. Not that I'm saying that committing rape is good, but I just think that somebody who is raping somebody has probably had sex before. So again, if Kavanaugh, was a virgin in high school and through most of or maybe all of his college years, it certainly means that it is less likely that any of these stories about his having abused women sexually are complete fabrications because basically what he's saying is there isn't even room for interpretation where I had sex with a woman and, you know, now she's saying that it was forced or maybe there was a misinterpretation uh, of the activity because there was no activity. According to Brett Kavanaugh, nothing ever happened. So there's no way that he could have ever sexually assaulted anyone because he didn't have sex with anyone. Now, I know, I mean, maybe he could be Bill Clintoning this whole thing and saying, well, I, it wasn't technically sex. But again, he went out of his way to say that he didn't have anything close to sex when he was in high school. Now, of course, these are very bold statements that he is making because they're easily refuted. I mean, if he was having sex. There could be a lot of women that could come forward, assuming they can remember having sex 36 years ago, 35 years ago, and they can come forward and say, yeah, I remember having sex with, with Brett Kavanaugh. And that would obviously uh, undermine his story uh, if there were some women that could came forward or, or people came forward and said, I knew about it. But of course, you know, it's possible that Brett Kavanaugh talked about having sex with women, but didn't actually have sex with women. I mean, there are plenty of times where guys just boast about their sexual conquests. Like I, I was reading this article about Brett Kavanaugh's yearbook, and there was a reference in the yearbook to this woman, Renate, and he said that he was a member of the Renate uh, alumni, which was some reference, I think, maybe to boys that had all had sex with, with Renate. And I don't know, maybe Kavanaugh just wanted to say he did because that was like the thing that you said in order to prove your manhood uh, that you had sex with this woman. Now, I don't know, some people are saying maybe it just meant that you went out on a date with her or something like that. But I think this woman, Renate, has come out and said that she has no recollection of even kissing Brett Kavanaugh, let alone having sex with him. Now, that doesn't mean he, Brett Kavanaugh might not have bragged about a sexual conquest that he didn't actually have, especially if he was still a virgin throughout those years. But putting that stuff out there, I mean, you don't say that kind of stuff unless it's true, because obviously it's easily refutable. Uh, and this other woman is saying, oh, I have, you know, uh, Brett Kavanaugh would routinely assault women. He was getting drunk. He was, you know, all over women. Well, where are all these other women that he was routinely assaulting? that he was groping against their will. Why, why aren't these women uh, coming out? And why are there so many people coming out with the opposite story uh, of the few women that have come out to accuse Brett Kavanaugh of, of doing this stuff when he was in high school or college? And of course, nobody is coming out with any accusations against Judge Kavanaugh or Brett Kavanaugh as a man, as an adult, right? As a judge, as a lawyer, you know, in his pro professional capacity, supposedly this serial raper, this serial sexual assaulter, all of a sudden completely reformed and became, you know, totally uh, normal, upstanding citizen. 
In fact, if you listen to him speak, uh, you know, he sounds very sincere to me. I mean, if you look, if you watch the Fox uh, News report. So all this to me seems like complete fabrication. None of it makes any sense other than as an orchestrated effort just to derail uh, Brett Kavanaugh's chances, but also to make men look bad in general and to try to, you know, dig up all the stuff that goes on uh, in, in parties, high school, college. Uh, sure. I mean, guys have been spiking punch bowls at parties ever since they've had punch bowls at parties. I mean, maybe the, the only reason that there is a punch bowl is so you can spike it with alcohol. I mean, this stuff goes on, you know, even at the, at the parties, at the proms and places like that where they where they have punch. And it's not only just the guys. I mean, sometimes the women uh, will, will spike the punch bowl. So obviously this stuff goes on. Do guys take advantage of women who have had too much to drink? Of course they do. I mean, it's wrong, but it happens. Right? I mean, it's, they sh it shouldn't happen. In fact, many of the times the guys are drunk themselves. And so, you know, if we're not going to hold the woman responsible for what she does when she's drunk, well, why do we hold the man responsible for what he does when he's drunk? Two people are drunk and they make bad decisions. So we have to excuse both parties. You know, it's interesting that if a woman has too much to drink and then gets behind the wheel of a car, Right. And kill somebody. We don't say, well, she didn't know what she was doing. She was drunk. Let's give her a pass. Right. We hold the woman to the same standard as a guy. Right. You can't claim that I was drunk. So I didn't know what I was doing. You made the decision to drink. And if you make a decision to drink and then you get behind a wheel drunk and you hurt somebody, you are held responsible. You can't claim that you were drunk. And so you didn't know what you're doing, except when it comes to sex. A woman can have all the alcohol she wants. And then if she has sex while she's drunk, she can say, well, I didn't consent because I was drunk, right? But a guy, if a guy is also drunk and he has sex with a woman who's drunk, oh, it's rape. Well, why can't the guy say, I didn't know what I was doing, I was drunk. So it's a double standard, but of course this stuff happens, but that doesn't mean that Brett Kavanaugh should be disqualified for the Supreme Court, even if he was a guy who, you know, happened to take advantage of a woman who had too much to drink when he himself was also drunk at the same party and they were both underage, right? They're both teens, but it may not have even happened. Maybe Brett Kavanaugh was simply at a party where other teenage boys, right? Were having sexual relations with drunk teenage girls, right? It happens, right? I mean, and I blame the parents more than the kids. You got all these parties, all this alcohol. I mean, this woman, who I don't even believe anyway, but she's claiming that there's all these rapes going on at house parties. Where are the parents that own these houses where gang rapes are taking place on a regular basis and the parents are just allowing it to happen? I mean, come on. I mean, none of this even passes the smell test that all this would be going on. All this would have been kept tightly under wraps just until the moment that one of these kids Right? <laughs> happens to be nominated for the Supreme Court. Now, all of a sudden, boom, 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 these people who have remained silent for three decades all of a sudden decide that now we're going to spill the beans. Meanwhile, none of the other people who were at these parties says anything, or if they say anything, it's, I don't know what she's talking about. I don't recall any of this. I never saw any of this. Believe me, if there were girls being train raped at parties, everybody at the party would know what was going on. 
right? It wouldn't be a big secret. And if everybody knew what was going on, the secret would have come out. Not today, but 35 years ago when it happened. Donald Trump, of course, was bombarded with questions about the Kavanaugh nomination and all of the allegations now made against him by these three women. Of course, the reporters were trying to trap the president into accusing these women of lying, which he did not do, although he came as close as you can to saying they're lying without, in fact, calling them liars, which is probably the quote that these reporters were after. In fact, they were asking him if all of the allegations that have made by women against him, right, if that was tainting him and making him you know, inclined not to believe these women because of the allegations that were made against him, which of course is a fair point, but maybe what the reporters do not want to acknowledge is that if in fact the allegations that were made against President Trump were false, and if Trump has firsthand experience with women lying about him and saying things that were not true, then clearly he is sympathetic with the current circumstance if he is witnessing that the same thing may be happening to Judge Kavanaugh. So certainly, yes, he is able to emphasize with Kavanaugh and appreciate the fact that women don't always tell the truth, that in fact, sometimes they lie. Now, of course, the reporters that are asking this question likely believe that Trump was the one that lied. Of course, when women were coming out making allegations against President Clinton, of course, uh, many of these women were believing Bill Clinton, and they had no problem in doubting the word of the women who were making these allegations. It's only when the person who's being accused of something is Republican, then all of a sudden the, the Democratic women refuse to accept the fact that sometimes women lie, and obviously sometimes men lie as well. But clearly the allegations that are being made against Judge Kavanaugh, especially the one that I just finished discussing, this third one, are incredulous. The claims are so outlandish that any rational person would dismiss them, especially given the context in which the allegations are being made and there is no corroborating evidence other than just statements made by somebody 35 years after the fact that make absolutely no sense and defy all logical explanation.